Welcome to episode 185 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop, and today we are going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects. Yes, folks, yet again, economic modeling. And you have heard me opine on many an occasion that Canada doesn't do nearly enough of this. And uh, I look to the U.S. and the work that gets done out of the, the big American uh, laboratories uh, that the tremendous amount of modeling to support their policy work. You see it being done in academics do it. Uh, you see some of the, uh, the analysts and think tanks are doing it. And we do far, far less of it in Canada. And I think that our policy uh, making process is poorer because of it. But, but today we're having its good news. I'm going to be talking to Jean-Denis Charlebois, who is the chief economist of Canada Energy Regulator, which just published the Canada's Energy Future 2023 report. And it has for the first time net zero uh, uh, modeling. And we're going to be talking about oil and gas and that modeling. And I'm very curious because so many of our energy conversations hinge on where we think oil and gas is going to go over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And I'm very curious to see what Jean-Denis has to say about that. So welcome to the interview. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Look, let why don't we just for our listeners, uh, many of whom are probably uh, may not read your the the publication. Give us an overview of Canada's Energy Future twenty twenty three. So first, it comes from our Energy Information Program at the Canada Energy Regulator. That program works along our regulatory function that most people would be familiar with in terms of overseeing federally uh, regulated energy infrastructure in Canada. So Energy Futures 2023 is about uh, three scenarios, two of which where Canada meets net zero by 2050. That was the hard constraint uh, on our analysis and we'll come back to this sort of conversation. And, and what we find uh, in, our, in our analysis is that obviously uh, electricity is the backbone for uh, the energy transition and the pathways to net zero for Canada. Uh, playing a key role in increasing the efficiency of the energy system at the end use uh, level and also enabling emerging emerging sectors uh, for the use of electricity, whether it is through uh, transportation or hydrogen production, for example. Uh, the other two other key piece key pieces are um, electricity cannot do it alone. Uh, there needs to be a portfolio of other technologies, such as hydrogen, as I mentioned, but also carbon capture and storage, which I'm sure we will come back to, that also have a key role in there. Uh, the other and last kind of highlight is um, something that will not surprise anybody is that Canada, because it is a, a trading nation, what's happening in the rest of the world has a great impact on supply demand of commodities and what and how we produce it here at home, uh, which means that we need to pay special attention of global trends. Uh, and our analysis makes some assumption relying on the work of the International Energy Agency uh, about that global context. Uh, but that is a main driver actually specifically uh, about what's happening for the oil and gas sector. 
Let's talk about those assumptions for a moment, because I've interviewed folks, uh, economists from the uh, International Energy Agency. We do. We pay a lot of attention to their work, uh, as well as uh, a couple of other models like Bloomberg NEF would be one we we, we refer to quite often, maybe some in, in BP. Uh, and what are one of the things that struck me over the last five years is the extent to which the IEA has really embraced net zero. It's embraced the the uh, clean energy, uh, the energy transition. It it you know the, you know the IEA has been around for decades, and it was primarily put together uh, to uh, provide information about oil and for the global oil and gas industry to member governments, and that's but it's it's it seems to have made this pivot in the last five years and because i rely on their on their graphs and on their data and their and their assumptions and then their scenarios quite a bit i'm always surprised at the pushback i get from you know in, in public conversations about the ia as if it was some you know uh, radical eco group uh and it's not my understanding it is that it still is a fairly conservative uh when it comes to its assumptions about where the global energy system is going would you agree or disagree with that um we relied we chose to rely on the iea because we believe it is a credible organization uh and if we would have chosen uh we could have chosen other points of reference uh, for the global context, but we thought uh, the IAEA provided uh, the level of credibility we needed, as well as the level of transparency and accessibility in its uh, results, analysis, and data for us to use it, and also for others to have a, yeah, transparency into what is it that underlies those numbers. And to, to your point about, uh, you know, the IA embracing net zero, I, I, I can't comment on that. But the point, though, is that when you set out to model net zero, uh, of course, you will end up with results that are that illustrate a dramatic change into the existing energy system that we have. And this is what we have experienced at the CER. And you know, some might look at our uh, energy futures 2023 report and say, oh my God, like the, the CER is out there now in terms of quote unquote radical results. But to that, I say, look, the outcome was already predetermined we had to model to net zero by 2050. So in that context, I think it's inevitable that uh, the changes and the results that we have are quite fundamentally different than the manner in which the energy system is, is, is operating today. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because I'm just curious what your take is on it. And the reason for that is a point that I make quite often in these kinds of interviews, which is I do about four or 500 uh, expert interviews uh, every year. So between the podcast and the video, inter video interviews that I do, and I deliberately try to split them roughly in half. So half would be Canadian sources like yourself. The other half would be sources from the United States or Europe or Asia Pacific, trying to get a perspective outside Canada. And my take on this is that if I talking to an American, a European, or somebody from China or one of the other Asia Pacific countries, the the perception is 
that the energy transition is moving much quicker than somebody in Canada would think it is moving. And I I just I don't know that I, I have a request. I'm just curious what you think of that if uh, based on your experience. That's a that's a very interesting question. Like um if we if we look at the coal phase out that was uh, legislated a couple of years ago, what we observe is that uh, different jurisdictions have been able to execute the coal phase out much quicker than what originally foreseen. So on like I think in the early years, uh, I think it's it's fair to say yes, things are moving quickly. Um, more and more, we see the uptake uh, on electric vehicles uh, being in, in increasing through time. Um, but I think what we what we have noticed actually in our analysis is that as we progress through the projection period by 2050, is that there comes a time when the, the, the proverbial low-hanging fruits have been used up, right? And that emissions at the margin become increasingly uh, challenging and costly to manage and, and remove. So uh, I think this also explains maybe some, uh, some of our results that are, um, I think, more uh, ambitious, so to speak. Uh, I will just point out to our results regarding direct air capture, for example, or the extent to which we have to use carbon capture and storage. But that's an illustration that when you start off on the transition, so sure, the easy emissions are easily removed at the beginning, but then as you progress, it becomes increasingly challenging. So I think the pace the pace will vary through the trenches through the transition. I think that's a very good point. And, and the another point that I'm often make is that you know transitions follow because they're based on technology, they follow the S curve uh, more or less. And and the S curve, the bottom flat part of the S curve has long, long roots. I mean, a lot of technology we're talking about, like commercial solar panels from the 70s and commercial wind turbines in the 80s and lithium-ion batteries were introduced in the 90s. I mean, this is not like these tech, clean energy technologies sprang out of nowhere five years ago. There's long, long roots to this energy transition. And for many of them, we passed the, uh, the inflection point on the S curve. Now we're on the hockey stick, the exponential growth. But it... The exponential growth doesn't last forever. It, there's usually a, a tailing off at the last, you know, the last 10, 20, 30 percent of the market where it becomes flatter. And is that where you're talking about the the, the, the marginal uh, emissions are become harder and more costly to abate? Uh, to a large extent, yes. Uh, I have to say, though, that our analysis is mostly focused on the the cost of technologies and how in a net zero world where clean technologies get adopted uh, at, at a broader scale then cost would tend to fall because there's more familiarity more like more availability of such technology then if costs are are declining through time then this enables greater adoption of the technology while at the same time uh, there is an increasing cost of carbon that unabated emissions of carbon face that cost. So th there's this dual effect where on one hand, clean tech uh, has cost declining. And then for those emissions that remain, it becomes more and more costly to, to have them then 
other technologies become uh, economically viable. Hence, for example, uh, the, 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 the negative uh, 46 megaton of direct air capture that we have in our results. Is it fair to say then that this is an unusual time in, in policy history? You don't usually get the new technologies on the S-curve, you know, exponential growth declining, exponential costs declining exponentially. And yet at the same time, those marginal costs up at the top of the S-curve then face uh, pressure from, uh, from a carbon price or from other regulations designed to make them more expensive. And this seems to me, uh, I'm not an economist, but I, I'd be, I, I can't think of another example like this. Um, I tend to agree. This is uh, this is an unusual uh, transition in the sense that it is one that is driven by policies, uh, which put in place a new supply and demand dynamics and 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 cost on different sources of energy to give effect to reducing emissions. Um, this is another piece that we find in our report is that. Uh, policies that are being uh, rolled out both domestically in Canada, but significantly so globally, uh, again, in the context of some of the assumptions that we've made for our two net zero scenarios, where policies have an effect on a new supply and demand dynamics for oil and gas specifically, uh, such that the demand for such commodities declining, then lower price, more challenging for producers to continue to produce. So, uh, this what drives this are policies that 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 put a cost on carbon, a cost that didn't exist prior. Can you talk about the three scenarios and what are some of the you know the under, basic underlying assumptions for each one? Right. Uh, so we have three scenarios two of which where Canada meets net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, the third scenario we have is called current measures, uh, which essentially models the policies that are in place as of March 2023 and assumes no further uh, policies or no further increments in terms of stringencies of existing policies. Um, then our two net zero scenarios, one is called global net zero, which reflects essentially not only Canada meeting net zero emission by 2050, but also in a global context where uh, other countries are also effectively becoming net zero by 2050. So it's a net zero planet, right? Uh, our second net zero scenario um, is called a Canada net zero. Canada meets the, the objective, but the rest of the world is not moving as fast as uh, the global net zero scenario. So uh, we use the IEA announced pledges scenario, which is akin to kind of a 1.7 degree C uh, temperature increase uh, world, whereby um, the global net zero scenario is anchored into the IEA uh, net zero by 2050 scenario, more of a 1.5 degree C scenario. Uh, we also use so, so from those, from that premise and the global context from the IAA, we derive uh, the global prices for oil and gas, as well as uh, prices for technologies, uh, whether it's solar, wind power, those kinds of things, uh, because 
in this global world where technologies are, are traded, then uh, if there's greater adoption of it across the globe, then Canada would also be facing those kinds of uh, the, the, those kinds of improved costs, for example, through the transition. Yeah, we should point out that this is fairly standard. I mean, uh, pretty much uh, all of the modeling I've seen, the first scenario is status quo, not much changes, we just keep going the way we are. The second one is it's the policies we've announced, we actually follow through on them. And that's kind of the middle scenario. And then you've got the net zero modeling. And, and everybody has some variation uh, on that. And so let's apply this to uh, oil and in uh, you know when we're talking about Canadian crude oil production, we're talking about the oil sands because that's eighty percent of Alberta production and 67, 66, 67 percent of Canadian production, and so it plays an outside outsized role uh, in the industry. And my take on the as all on the oil sands has always been that the uh, it's a different beast because. It, you have 100, 102, 103 million barrels a day of oil demand globally, but 10.5 of that, or 10.5 million per day of that is heavy crude oil. And that's where, uh, the, that's where the oil sands plays. 5.5 million barrels a day of that refining capacity is in the US. That's where all of the exports go uh, from the oil sands and, and Canada's, Alberta's kind of the, the, the big player in, in, in the US market. And it just is, I've always taken it as a, a given that that market might very well uh, show more resilience even after global oil demand peaks, begins to decline. Light, sweet crude may would probably decline quicker than heavy because it goes into, into petrochemicals and it goes into aviation and bunker C for ship, marine shipping, things that for which we don't have ready substitutes yet. Is that a reasonable assumption? Um, to some extent, it is. At the same time, kind of two two nuances that we uh, that we highlight in our report about that. Uh, first is the fact that uh, you, you've highlighted the, the the declining global demand for oil and gas, uh, and interestingly, even if in our global net zero scenario, Canadian production declines to one point. 2 million barrels per day uh, by 2050. This represents actually the same share of global market that current that Canada currently holds in a almost 100 million barrels per day global market. So, so that's one point. The second point is there were, I'm sure you'll recall, you know, a couple of years ago, because oil sands uh, projects had important sunk costs at the beginning, but then a lower marginal cost uh, going forward, they would be able to fare reasonably well in a low price environment. Well, that remains true, but what is different in our analysis is that, again, because Canada needs to meet net zero by 2050 and manage those emissions, um, then Canadian producers are facing very real, um, very real decarbonization costs, and those costs are most acute for oil sands producers versus conventional producers um, because of the uh, emission intensity of the two methods of production. So, what we see through the projection period is that, relatively speaking, 
conventional production tends to uh, be more resilient because of that JG intensity and the fact that conventional producers do not face the same decarbonization cost as oil sands, and also because of the shorter time period uh, in terms of recovering capital, which is especially important in a in an environment where price is declining at a pace that is uh, somewhat worrisome for producers that don't have perfect foresight into the future as it relates to pricing. What about some of the subsectors within the oil sands? And I was looking today at an S&P Global Emissions uh, Report for the oil sands, and uh, not all methods of producing uh, bitumen are equal. So, for instance, uh, CCS, Dilbit, which is uh, combined uh, steam and cycle, uh, no, combined cyclical steam, CCS, uh, is very, very intense. I mean, it's, I think it's the average, the highest one is about 160 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per barrel. Uh, but then there's there's also um, uh, synthetic crude oil, uh, uh, SCO. And, and so that also has very high emissions intensity. And, but others, uh, such as oh, um, uh, SAGD uh, uh, Dilbit, uh, has mining. Quite, quite low. Yeah. yeah. Well, SAGD has low, and then mining uh, PFT, paraffinic uh, froth treatment, uh, has, is fairly low. And so it would seem that the abatement costs for those different types of production would be very, very different. And that might then, uh, fact it might affect the assumptions behind you know what kind of production is more competitive or less competitive going forward uh that's that's true and that's something that we take into account in our analysis and again what what we what we find is, and it's a bit contrary to maybe the the, the general premise out there is that what is biting the most uh for Canadian producers, irrespective of the method of production that you have uh, described, is the unforgiving global price environment uh, that actually has a price of oil of uh, $24 by 2050. Uh, we take this from the IEA, but at that price point, only the most efficient producer from a cost perspective are able to continue to produce uh, and this is the the driver that explains uh, to the greater to the greatest extent the the, the decline in production that we see uh, in our uh, in our projection period as it relates to oil how do you see this and I guess this is maybe a reflection of the IEA's data and analysis but I've talked to a variety of economists about you know what happens when uh, Oil peak uh, oil demand comes along, and then generally, I think people you know assume there's going to be a, a bit of a bumpy plateau for a, a few years, and then there'll be a, a decline curve will start. Nobody knows what kind of what that decline curve will look like just yet, but nevertheless, it'll like a decline curve. So my question has always been: Okay, so you, let's say it peaks at 103 million barrels a day. That's hypothetical, just for the sake of argument, and and then you have it goes down to 100 and you have 103 million barrels a day of supply chasing 100 million barrels a day of demand. And then that same amount of supply chasing 95 million barrels a day. You know, what's your take on the dynamic there? Like, you know, in a, in a perfect world uh, or in a world 
populated uh, or created by economists, then the least the, the highest cost producers would just drop out of the, of the market. But of course, we have nas uh, national oil companies and we have the Saudis and others who need 80, 90 barrels a day to meet their, their government uh, revenue requirements. And so they might not behave that way in a perfectly rational in a rational way. And it seems to me that the best, most likely scenario would be chaos, or at least volatility, a lot of volatility and disruption. What, what is that a reasonable assumption? Well, the, the, the assumption we've made is, is this decline in oil prices down to 24. And at the same time, we fully acknowledge that this is a main uncertainty of our report in terms of how things will actually turn out. Because as you point out, we've seen um, not too long ago, OPEC uh, taking measures to limit production in order to sustain a certain level of price. So it's not to say that this will not actually continue into the future. So we need to acknowledge that this is an uncertainty. And at the same time, the way we have uh, conducted our analysis is that um, and that's now a little bit of the nitty gritty details, but the point is that if a Canadian producers can economically uh, produce oil or, or gas, same dynamic with natural gas, uh, produce uh, oil at the prevailing market price, then that barrel will be produced and will clear the market. Uh, so it's a bit of a arguably a simplifying assumption, acknowledging that there are different types or grades of oil. And this is something that, that we have in mind for future modeling improvement. Coming back to your initial point, um, modeling is always right a, an evolving exercise. And the work we've done in 20, well, 2022, 2023, net modeling made zero builds upon the, the previous iterations of our modeling exercise in previous energy futures work, which we will continue to build upon this 2023 report for the future iteration uh, that we are still scoping out. Now, you mentioned that the uh, uh, G the emissions abatement costs would be a uh, burden for the oil sands and would affect their, their competitiveness going forward. But what about for both light sweet crude and various types of heavy crude? Um, Canada, Canadian producers are generally far from market particularly from Alberta and uh, pipeline tolls, as I recall them are, you know, to get to us markets are around seven, nine, maybe even as much as $15 and can be more if it's oil, if it's by rail. And how does that play into it? Because I, I mean, if you add 12 to $15 off the price of a barrel and your, you know, your barrels down at your price is down at $30, uh, you better be a pretty efficient producer to survive it. 30 bucks, yeah. 40 bucks. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is, you know, I've been talking about $24 uh, by 2050 from the IEA. And this this $24 is the Brent price uh, from which we adjust uh, to take into account the, the particularities that you outlined, which means that there's a, a historical discount from Brent to WTI, which we assume at about uh, 2.5 dollars i believe and then from uh, wti to wcs uh again to reflect canadian particularities at about uh, uh 12 dollars and a half uh to uh reflect the difference in quality as well as transportation costs 
Yeah, that make, that makes sense. And it also makes uh, life very difficult for Canadian producers once it gets down in that in that range. Um, okay, well, what, what about different regions? Uh, because Alberta is not the, quite the same as Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan and Alberta are not quite the same as Newfoundland and Labrador. Is there any variation in your modeling uh, between regions? I think the, the most noticeable distinction is between onshore and offshore. So basically, <clears throat> Alberta, Saskatchewan, apart from the distinction, uh, conventional oil sands that we've already talked about, uh, the piece about the, the trend and the offshore are, are somewhat, uh, well, they, they follow the same trend, but what's noticeable is because um, it's because of the, the the nature of the complexities and also the lead time to replace declining production in the offshore, we see a production uh, declining uh, on a similar path in the offshore, irrespective of the scenario, uh, including current measures, which Again, we, we recognize that this is an uncertainty. It depends on the level of exploration and you know how how effective that is. Um, but it is one point where there, there's a different, uh, quite of a distinction, because when you look at oil production onshore, um, then it, it reaches about in the current measure scenario, uh, where one the one where we freeze current policies reaches you know more than six million barrels per day uh, but on the offshore we assume that there's no uh, incremental discoveries over and above uh, the Bijanal project that we assume will come online and you know around 2030 you know, acknowledging that uh, Ikinar has uh, announced a three-year delay there uh, but then will follow a natural decline as well as the existing projects um, without uh, incremental produ production uh, offsetting that decline. Well, let's talk about natural gas now, because this is in the news all the time these days because of Alberta's insistence that somehow uh, exports of clean, and I'm, uh, for listeners who can't see me doing this, I'm putting scare quotes around clean uh, LNG off the West Coast could be sent to you know Japan or or, uh, or China and other Asian countries that are burning a lot of coal, displace coal, earn credits under Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. There's a big scrap. Uh, energy media is knee deep in this because we've uh, interviewed carbon uh, management consultants who say that that's not the way. That's not, it'll be very, 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 very difficult under Article 6. And then to get to bring the, the Canadian government to the table introduces a couple more varies. And anyway, it's unlikely uh, that this is going to happen. But there's a lot of noise in Western Canada about increasing LNG production on the West Coast. How did that play into your assumptions and I mean by that I mean how did LNG play into your assumptions about natural 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 gas production in Western Canada? Um, so first point is that because LNG opens up uh, new markets for Canadian producers, it will generate incremental production uh, compared to if there would be no LNG. And, and the ratio we use is 75%, uh, meaning that 75% uh, of LNG export will actually translate into incremental production that would not occur otherwise. And 
so that being said, we we see LNG exports occurring in the three scenarios at different levels, obviously, uh, reflecting the different price environment. And uh, we see so about two BCF uh, to start with, and even in the global net zero scenario, two BCF starting in the late 2020s. Uh, and what's particular in the global net zero scenario is that by the late 2040s, for projects that are uh, not electrified, then uh, they face those carbon costs that we have discussed prior. They, they also face you know, an unforgiving price environment globally, which makes their economics very challenging. So from, a, you know, from 2 BCF level, uh, we see by 2046, 47 at a tail end of the projection period, again, acknowledging it's uncertain, we, we understand each other here, um, but only the electrified exports would remain at the tail end, leaving about 300 MMCF uh, by that point. And then, so that's for the global net zero scenario. And then we go by increments uh, in terms of an additional, maybe an additional 2 BCF uh, in the Canada net zero scenario, and even more so uh, in the current measure scenario. What's the one assumption we've made in our analysis is that um, because the uh, coastal gassing project uh, is, uh, I think, expandable up to 5 BCF a day, that effectively act as a, as a cap uh, for LNG reach or, or natural gas reaching the West Coast for LNG exports. So that is a constraint that we've put on our, our, on our analysis to avoid making other types of assumptions. But again, as as we've discussed prior, this is an uncertainty, but uh, a piece that um, is worth mentioning here in the conversation. So if I understand this correctly, um, LNG Canada phase one will, I forget what the consumption is uh, per day, uh, but that's that's built in. And then the assumption around growth of LNG exports is essentially LNG Canada phase two. You got it. Yeah, that's essentially it. Right. And then you don't assume that there are any other LNG plants uh, constructed after LNG Canada phase two. Um, in the Canada net zero scenario, uh, and you've mentioned uh, LNG Canada, um, the, the other project I'll mention is uh, wood fiber that, that we have included in our analysis. And we are fully aware that there are other projects uh, on the table uh, that have been, some of them are quite along into the regulatory process. And, um, you know, they, they may materialize. Again, it's for the project developers to, to make the uh, required uh, investment decisions. Um, but in our analysis, you know, given the price environment and what we foresaw, uh, what we foresee, uh, we believe that uh, those uh, LNG export levels are what is achievable in the context of the, the three scenarios that, that we had, acknowledging that um, at 5 BCF a day, you know, in the current measure scenario, uh, then there is room for, uh, you know, more than uh, only LNG Canada and wood fiber. Um, and then, you know, Again, I remind your uh, your audience of the nature of our analysis, right? Where we force the system to meet net zero by 2050, and then there's a there's an open question as to whether or not 
reality will turn out to be that way. And I think it plays out into uh, the investment decision that, uh, in fact, not only uh, LNG project developers are, are weighing, but also other uh, other uh, hydrocarbon projects or pipeline projects, for example. Yes, and I think we should point out for, for our listeners that uh, you can go on to the Energy Talks uh, podcast episodes and you'll find, I think, four or five uh, interviews that we've done with with both opponents and proponents of West Coast Canada uh, LNG development and some very interesting observations. I mean, there are at least one economist who is who has identified that you know West Coast LNG projects, their capital costs are twice those of the U.S. Gulf Coast. I mean, you just you know you're building something into Houston or or Louisiana, your costs, the capital costs are much lower than if you're building something in Kitimat. Uh, but then it, it, this it becomes such a complex calculation because then we've got this huge uh, bulge of, of new LNG supply that's coming into the market in the next uh, in the next couple of years, I think 24, 2024, 2025, 2026. And uh, who knows where global markets are going to go as regions like Europe uh, uh, step up their electrification uh, efforts. Uh, that could throw a wrench into everybody's LNG plans. I mean, it's just very much. Is it fair to say, and 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 I'll back up a little bit. In our in my take on energy transitions, uh, I've mentioned the long routes, the 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 bottom of the S curve, where technologies are inching their way along as they become uh, better and better and better and lower and lower costs and more competitive. Finally, they get to be competitive. They hit the the in, inflection point. And, and then there's generally a period of, of really intense disruption as they get into the marketplace and they begin to challenge the, the incumbent energy sources or the incumbent technologies. And it seems like uh, the 2020s are that period of disruption. It's very volatile. We're seeing the oil market do things that, that nobody expected given the levels of capital investment that uh, the underinvestment that's taking place. We're seeing... Uh, uh, we're seeing uh, all sorts of uh, changes in, in, in regulatory behavior and investor behavior uh, brought on by uncertainty and and the perception of risk that the energy transition creates for them. And uh, but I was wondering what the uh, CER's economic modeling team would think of that. Uh, you know, it, is this a period of disruption volatility that makes it more difficult for you to model, or does that just not matter at this point? Um, I think the the way we see it is that uh, once we embark on this pathway to net zero, the disruption will occur throughout the projection period. As as we see it, I mean, it, I think it, it starts. I think most acutely uh, in the electricity sector, where you know the deployment. I mean, we've talked about the phase out of carbon. Uh, sorry, the, the phase out of coal. Um, the, the the greater deployment of wind power uh, and you know the electricity system on this pathway to net zero reaching net zero by 2035 uh, is quite the disruption right and then as you move into the 2030s this is where we see uh, the peak of capital deployment as it relates to carbon capture and storage uh, then being played out obviously in oil and gas but also in a number of other uh, industrial sectors uh, 
And then as you continue to progress down this pathway to net zero and tackling the challenging emissions, then uh, this is where you see an increase in direct air capture. This is where you see the greater deployment of small modular reactors. Um, so this goes, you know, way beyond the uh, the oil and gas sector that we've mentioned, but affects the whole energy system uh, in a different way uh, at different times, um, which is quite fascinating, actually, when you when you think about it. Oh, it it absolutely is. Even when you're not thinking about it, it's still it's still fascinating. And one of the reasons why I find it fascinating is because of the four sectors, and we're talking here about power, transportation, industry, and buildings, of the, the four, uh, the two that most affect future demand for oil, which is power sector, which is essentially the rise of renewables and, and clean electricity of all kinds, which whether it's be hydro or geothermal or nuclear or whatever, uh, coupled with the changes in transportation around the automakers, the far... The, the switch from uh, internal combustion engine to uh, electric vehicles is taking pay, place uh, and at a pace that nobody expected even, you know, two, three years ago. It has just come right out of left field where suddenly everybody's all in on electric and they're scrambling to deploy capital and, and build out their supply chains and their and their factories and train up their their workers and all of that. It's just it's it's mind boggling how fast that particular industry is being disrupted. And essentially, the the uh, uh, all of these electric vehicles are essentially the the demand technology that displaces oil and electricity is the supply technology. And the two of them together are the thing that will eventually uh, lead to the decline in, in oil demand. And, and so it is, is your, is my perception of the rate of disruption, the rate of change, the rate of growth of these new clean energy technologies, is that a, a reasonable take? on what you're seeing and, and and as you went through your modeling? Uh yes, that that reflects the the trends and the the the, the trends and the yeah that we see on the pathway to net zero. Um I think there there comes a point where when you look at that and also reality, what's happening in the real world. Like yes, we see uh greater penetration of electric vehicles, like we no argument there. But then there there's still question as to okay, as we progress down this pathway, uh is there uh are we moving fast enough or or is there enough in place to enable that transition? And I think that's an open question. In effect, uh, when you look at uh, the assumptions of our two scenarios, what we see is that the the policies that are currently in place or the policies that are announced are actually not sufficient to bring Canada to net zero. And there more needs to be done. This is something policymakers know and acknowledge. And uh, this is what our analysis showed as well. Well, uh, uh, Jean-Denis, this has been a, a fascinating discussion. I really uh, appreciate this. And we'll look forward to uh, Energy Futures uh, 2024. So we can do it all over again next year. Thank you very much for this. My pleasure. And just so we're clear, it may be 2024 or maybe 2025. We haven't decided yet or committed to a timeline for an acceleration. Well, if, if, if it turns out to be 2025, we'll have you on next year to explain why there's a delay. Any time. It was a pleasure. Thank you.